Hi there, and welcome to the podcast for Wednesday, December the 16th. Coming up, Forget 9 to 5 is 322, the future of work post-pandemic. Also, Quebec enacts new holiday restrictions should Ontario follow suit. And the benefits of including pharmacies in the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccinations. All of that coming up next here on the pod. As we enter the final weeks of 2020, many are wondering, what does the next year, what does 2021 hold? Will we still be all working from home? Will we ever return to the office? Here is futurist Nick Badminton. He joins us with the answers here on Global, Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Nick, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thank you so much. All right. Appreciate you being here. All right. Let's get right to it. Uh, when it comes to work in 2021, what are you seeing uh, in the next year? Will people slowly, eventually, as the vaccine is rolled out, will they return to the office? I, I think it's yes and no. I, I think what we're going to see is we're going to we're going to see a shift, and we're going to see uh, we're going to see people wanting the flexibility that they've had somewhat with working from home and working remotely, uh, and also an in-office environment. So this is going to be uh, a sort of a balance, probably like two or three days in the office. Uh, two or three days at home in the office to be collaborative and creative to have meetings that matter that enable people to do better uh, collaborative work and then the time at home where you can be truly truly uh, productive but there are going to be some people that want to be completely remote and there's going to be some people that want to be completely in the office and it's it's kind of that divide between like the 20 something uh, 20 something year old worker that wants the independence and, you know, the slightly older person with a family that might actually rely on that work environment to create some semblance of a life balance, right? Yeah, tell us about this, uh, forget nine to five. There's been a lot of talk, apparently a lot of corporations are uh, thinking ahead to what they're calling three, two, two, Nick, which is basically what, three days in the office, two out and two days for a weekend. Yeah, and <laughs> it's interesting, Dif- different jobs, you know, work on the nine to five, the Monday to Friday or, or the Monday to Saturday or Tuesday to Saturday. And some have just sort of bled into people's lives. People are doing a little bit of work seven days a week. And that's something that I've been doing for years. Some people are completely remote and they work all night and they, they want to do something else during the day. I don't think it's as simple as the three two two. Uh, a method that's being sort of touted by so many people. I just think that what needs to happen is uh, management organizations, they need to be open to flexibility, to listening to how people work, and to really make that work for themselves, because that's going to lead to a lot more productivity, a lot more creativity, and a lot better work environment overall. Yeah, you would think a happier workforce, because you're absolutely right. The pandemic, I think, has maybe, you know, given people pause when it comes to their working life and finding that work-life balance and is something like 322 or a version of it do you think that's a happy medium between what some employees might want which is a little more flexibility work-life balance and companies trying to hold uh, workers uh, accountable still seeing them three days maybe four days a week yeah i i absolutely do think that it, it, it is workable i think it depends what industry you're in i i think that you you've got to really work out you know every job's different and every set of tasks need you to either be collaborative or sort of be on your own and being productive and having the, the checks and balances in meetings, right? So I, I don't think that it's going to be a one-size-fits-all. I think that there's going to be smaller offices. I think that people aren't going to have their own desks. 
I think it's going to be hot desking. I think that it's going to take a lot of people that haven't done that before uh, time to get used to that. And I think that some people are going to love that. But it's going to be a long time, you know, before we get to the point where we're going to start to try out some of these new models. It's going to be, I think, you know, September, October next year before people are starting to really think, okay, I can start going back into the office even for one day a week. All right, meantime, let's talk about socialization and socializing. We know this uh, Christmas, this holiday is going to be like uh, one we've never experienced or had before, everybody being encouraged to stay within their own uh, household, within their own uh, home. But moving into 2021, and again, as the vaccine uh, rolls out, do you think that we're eventually going to get back to socializing in a way we did pre-pandemic, or are those days gone? I don't think those days are gone at all. I mean, you know, the human society for thousands of years has been getting together uh, to, to celebrate events, uh, to, to socialize more casually as well. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of hyperbole about, you know, society is changing, culture has changed forever and whatever. I just don't see it. I just think that as soon as I can get out to a restaurant to go and see friends or I can go to a bar and see some friends, I can go to, you know, the any kind of, of socialization event, live music or whatever, and it's going to be safe or I'm going to be able to have put in some protocols, whether that's wearing masks or, you know, the event uh, is, is ensuring that um, everyone's going to be safe. I think everyone's going to get back to normal as soon as they can. So I think that that's been, it's been overhyped that suddenly the world's going to change. I just think that right now we're sort of stuck, stuck at homes in our basements and working away and whatever. We're going to be stuck in these places for, for the holidays. But you know what? This is just a short blip on a very long life for many of us, right? Sure, but is there a psychological hurdle, if you will, Nick, to get over? I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, I miss live music as much as anybody, but, you know, trying to think about going into an arena or a stadium with 20,000 uh, other people after what we've been through the, the last year or so, I think there's going to be some people hesitant to do that. Yeah, absolutely there will. And you know what? Those, those individuals will uh, will take take their, their own course of action as they want. I mean, we're in a situation where we've been dictated to how we need to operate. And you know what? This one-size-fits-all strategy just isn't sustainable. Um, a lot of it isn't, isn't sensible to me uh, when you can actually start to pinpoint where the problems are and, and take action against you know, those areas and help the people that need to be helped versus this sort of this blanket situation that we find ourselves in with the lockdown. But you know what? Viruses are sneaky things. They get everywhere. And uh, you just need to, as on an individual basis, just control who you see, know that there needs to be responsibility around that and try and avoid <laughs> you know, mixing and mingling with people that you just don't know. When it comes to going back to concerts and whatever, yeah, people are going to be nervous. Uh, do I think that concerts and, and, and events, conferences and whatever are going to be smaller uh, once, people, once we get the go-ahead? No, I think they're going to be bigger. I think that there's going to be huge celebrations, <laughs> especially across North America, places that I go and speak, like Las Vegas. I think you're going to see conferences that were 2,000 people being like five-plus thousand people, and I think that people can't. Mm get back together. Just finally, I wanted to ask you about real estate because there's been a lot of talk about a shift from uh, urban into suburban, that uh, Toronto, for example, is no longer the most costliest real estate market in the country, that a lot of people have fled the city. Do you think that uh, into 2021 that uh, we're going to see a seismic shift when it comes to, to real estate, or are we going back to the way it was? I, I just think it's a bit of an adjustment. I think that people are still buying in cities. I've just sold uh, an apartment that I, that I owned 
that was outstanding to be sold in, in, in the centre of Vancouver. And the people that were buying that uh, are a young couple. They want to be in the heart of the action. I think it's going to be the same in Toronto and other places, uh, you know, big cities. Yes, there's been a huge amount of people that have taken this as an opportunity to get out into the suburbs. And some have gone even further out into you know, rural Ontario and whatever. But you know what? I think that there's going to be a lot of younger people that do want to come back to the centre of cities. And I think that once it becomes a bustling, vibrant place, I think the economic commissions around the world are going to start drawing people back in with events and festivals and all sorts of celebrations. So that's going to start reconnecting people with the culture and cities. And I think that that is what's going to sort of repair everything. And what's good? is that it's going to be cheaper to get in the game versus what it was getting like before, which was a little bit ridiculous. Well, as somebody who lives downtown, as you mentioned, in the heart of the action, I can hardly wait for the action to return. Exactly. <laughs> Nick, yeah, exactly. Uh, thanks for this. Thanks, as always, and happy holidays. Best in the new year. Take care, Jeff. Happy new year. Bye. Appreciate it. There's futurist Nick Badminton with us. Okay, it's a single day high. 850 COVID cases in the city today, 850 new COVID cases in Toronto. We are also, in case you missed it, over 2,000 provincially. 2,139 is to today's COVID count in the province of Ontario. And those growing numbers have got some talking about uh, perhaps further lockdown measures. As a matter of fact, the Premier asked about that yesterday. He was asked about what's going on in Quebec, and he basically said that uh, he's not afraid to go there. He'll go there if he has to. Quebec, by the way, has enacted new what they're calling holiday restrictions. People are being told to work from home unless absolutely necessary. And all non-essential businesses in the province of Quebec will close Christmas Day and remain closed until January the 11th for what they're calling there a holiday pause. For more on this, Dan Kelly, he is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. He's on the line and joins us here on Global News Radio. Dan, good afternoon. Nice to have you back on. Good afternoon. Uh, first off, uh, what do you make of this uh, holiday pause that is going to happen in the province of Quebec? Well, look, anytime businesses are forced to close, more of them are, are just going to fail altogether. We are already expect- expecting 160,000 businesses across Canada to permanently close their doors as a result of the pandemic. And, and every single day that a province enacts new rules, that number will grow. Uh, so it's certainly not good news. I, I will say, though, that quite by, compar- by comparison, Quebec's rules uh, are at, at the very least fair between different types of retailers. Ontario is the only province in Canada that has this bizarre loophole that allows big box stores to remain open to, to sell absolutely anything, while small firms are required to be fully closed to in-store traffic. And, and that we still don't understand why government would allow. So you and the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, you would not be in favor. I mean, again, the premier was asked about this uh, yesterday. He said uh, nothing essentially is off the table. He was asked about what Quebec is doing, but you would not be in favor of a so-called holiday pause then? Well, no, uh, we we certainly wouldn't. Uh, in, we wouldn't be advocating for one. We certainly recognize governments may need to take uh, strict action, as 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 many have. What we want to make sure more than anything is that if there is going to be a requirement to close more businesses, that it's been being done in a fair fashion. And, and Ontario's rules are just not that. 
Uh, it is, you know, every single other province in the entire country, together with its public health officials, have reached other uh, recommendations not requiring uh, every, you know, not allowing big dock stores to stay open while the small firms are, firms are, are required to stay closed. And that's that's the part that I think is the most objectionable of, of all the elements of, of Ontario's lockdown rules. Yeah, Dan, for those that don't know, what is going on with the Costcos and the Walmarts of the world and other provinces like Quebec and B.C.? Uh, here we've been told that it was just logistically impossible for these uh, big stores, these larger retailers, to cordon off certain sections of their store and only sell essentials. Yeah, look, uh, if you go from coast to coast, most provinces have put in place restrictions to uh, to, to allow a, a certain capacity of their former volume to go through the doors. Uh, in Alberta, it's most restricted. It's 15% of customers are allowed to come to any given store. But that's, the tr- that's true for both small and large retailers. That's the case in most provinces. Saskatchewan allows smaller businesses to serve more of its customer base, but has tight, tight restrictions on big box stores, which typically have large lineups and big crowds. Uh, Manitoba and now Quebec have moved to have rules that, that only allow essential goods to be sold, grocery products and pharmacy products. And the big box stores that, that sell a variety of things are only allowed to sell those products that are permitted. They, they're not allowed to sell you a pair of jeans or a, or a new TV. Uh, any one of those policies is way better than what Ontario has done, and that is to say that it's dangerous to buy a book in an independent bookstore, but perfectly acceptable to go and stand with 200 people in a Costco breathing over your neck and buy one there. That's the part that that has really turned this into anger among independent businesses at the Ford government for permitting a stupid policy, one that we believe will lead to more COVID outbreaks and and clearly is just not working as we've not seen any reduction in Ontario's numbers. I'm going to take it that argument you just made here on our show on these airwaves is one you have made to the provincial government. Is it just falling on deaf ears? It it seems to be. Uh, When they first came out with it, they said that they couldn't go there, as you noted, because it would cause supply chain challenges for big box stores. And, and look, I, I get, I, I think that's right. It will co- create supply chain inconveniences for some of these big box stores. They certainly won't like it. Consumers won't like not being able to buy the pair of jeans in the aisle just because it's not permitted. But if we're saying that it's unsafe to go shopping, it's unsafe to go to the tiny store that has two customers and buy that pair of jeans or that new TV, why on earth would we allow big box stores to do it? The next reason that the government offered is that it's better to have one-stop shopping. Well, I'm telling you, the, what's, what we're seeing in real time is big lines to get into the store and bigger and big lines in the store to get out at check stands, as opposed to allowing customers to go in and out of a small retailer with a handful of customers uh, and do their business. That, that's the part that also doesn't seem to make any common sense. All right, just to bring this conversation full circle and get back to the COVID numbers, again, 850 in the city of Toronto today, a new single-day record. We're over 2,000 in the province for a second day in a row. If we do need some further restrictions, if that's what government decides, uh, Dan, and they're looking at this holiday pause, at the very least, if it goes from December 25th into early or mid-January, like is happening in Quebec, is that at least the best case scenario for a lot of retailers because typically that's when maybe you know the holiday shopping season is over people have done their spending already and certainly early january is usually usually a quieter time 
Well, look, if we had had a scenario where retailers were allowed to stay open in the lead up to Christmas and then close down afterwards, it would be an awful lot better than what we've seen. Ontario shut us down quite early, basically killing four of the most critical weeks for small retailers. That policy will mean the death of thousands and thousands of small businesses across the Toronto, Peel, and now into York and and Windsor. Uh, These businesses will no longer be there. Business owners will be losing their homes. Uh, Every single member of their family often is employed in the business. They will all lose their source of employment. And we And we really, really need to see a pathway, a safe pathway to allow small businesses to to open, to regain some of the season. It's better to do this before Christmas, uh, but gosh, Boxing Week is also a big week for a lot of retailers, and and they're going to be missing out on that too. All right. Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Dan, always appreciate the time. Thanks so much. Anytime at all. As the vaccine rolls out across the province and across the country, really, with more expected, both from Pfizer and Moderna, we're hearing soon to be on board, we're all waiting as to what are the next steps. What are the next steps when it comes to the rollout of the vaccine? Sandra Hanna is the CEO of the Neighborhood Pharmacy Association and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Sandra, how are you? Hi, Jeff. I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you being here. All right, you believe, much like with testing, neighborhood pharmacies could have a role to play here when it comes to the vaccine and its rollout? We believe, certainly, we have a very important role to play. I mean, this is one of the largest and most complex vaccination campaigns in our generation and likely in in the near history of this country. Um, And I think it's going to be an all-hands-on-deck approach with every trained immunizer pitching in to meet the needs of the 37 million Canadians um, that are going to, you know, many of them are going to want this vaccine. Um, I think we we have an opportunity to leverage the accessibility of community pharmacies. So uh, 11,000 of them in Canada, 4,600 in Ontario. And the reality is that over 90% of people in Ontario live within a five kilometer radius of a community pharmacy, uh, two thirds within a walking distance. So it's a huge opportunity for us to be able to pitch in and say we have the accessibility and uh, almost 90% of community pharmacies are already routinely administering vaccines for the flu. So um, we're very well positioned to support and we think we're going to play a really important role once vaccines become more available to um, vaccinate the general public. Okay, you've got the accessibility, but do you have the capability of administering these uh, vaccines, particularly the Pfizer vaccine, which, as we know, has got to be stored at these really sub-sub-zero temperatures, like minus 70, minus 80, with these uh, special freezers or refrigeration units? Can every neighborhood pharmacy uh, stock the Pfizer vaccine? Yeah, so it's a great question, Jeff. Um, so the, the government has actually um, announced sort of a three-phase uh, approach and, and process for actually getting these vaccines out. So uh, the first phase, which is really the uh, vaccine that's available now, which is the Pfizer vaccine, is really prioritizing uh, very high-need populations. So they're currently being delivered, uh, again, based on the, the availability, based on the logistical challenges, and based on, um, you know, just the supply that's available today in in uh, a couple of central hospitals. So, so currently in, in uh, UHN and in Ottawa, uh, the Ottawa Hospital. Uh, uh, we believe that um, you know pharmacies will be engaged in in uh, probably the later phases when when vaccines become more available. Right now, because of the lack uh, the the short supply or the 
um, reduced supply of, of vaccine currently available in the country, we're really prioritizing and making sure those who need it most are getting the vaccine early. Um, so we do believe that once vaccines become more available um, for the public who, who wants them, pharmacies are going to play a really, really tremendous and important role. But you'd be more capable, neighborhood pharmacies, of administering the Moderna vaccine, which uh, from what we hear in reports uh, suggest uh, is not uh, demanding or as demanding uh, when it comes to storage uh, capacity and uh, storage uh, requirements? Yeah, so we're hearing so so the Moderna vaccine, uh, also the, um, the the other vaccines that are in the pipeline now that we anticipate might come uh, early in 2021. Uh, they have much um, much different logistical challenges. So they they are um, you know stored at, at refrigerator or freezer temperatures, and those capabilities already exist in most pharmacies today. Um, most just about every pharmacy is equipped has to be equipped with. Um, a refrigerator who can man- that can manage um, the cold chain requirements and the distribution channels that service pharmacies and the supply chains that service pharmacies are also equipped with the expertise and the uh, logistical experience of, of uh, storing and transporting uh, cold chain products like vaccines. All right, Sandra, can you tell us where we're at when it comes to the uh, rollout? Uh, have you had any or your organization discussions with either the provincial or uh, federal government? Are they open to the idea of the neighborhood pharmacy playing a role in the rollout? Absolutely. So we've been having these discussions since March, basically, since we knew that this, this was going to come. Um, we've been having discussions both with federal and provincial governments as to the role that we believe pharmacies can play and how we can help support uh, the successful deployment of this vaccination campaign. Um, we've, um, you know, we've, we've done some surveys uh, and our, our colleagues at the Canadian Pharmacists Association have done surveys uh, to, to look at Canadians and, their pub- and done some public opinion polling to understand where Canadians are looking to get their vaccines. And um, the reality is that, um, you know, two-thirds of Canadians approximately are saying that they'd, they'd be interested in getting a vaccine at a pharmacy. We've also surveyed our members that represent the majority of the community pharmacies across the country, and um, they are all very keen to participate. Uh, they're ready to participate. They've got the infrastructure and the cold chain and the storage requirements to participate, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, in the, in the refrigerated uh, products that are coming down the pipeline. Um, so we are ready, and we're, we're we're having active discussions with governments, federal and provincial, to to really partner with government to ensure that uh, once the vaccines are available, we have a process in place and we have a, a system in place that engages all healthcare providers who are able to participate, uh, so that we can meet the demands of of the 37 million Canadians um, across across the country. Sandra, just finally, uh, what's the timeline? Are you looking at April? Is that what you're planning for? If pharmacies are brought on board, that's what we've heard from the government when it comes to kind of the general immunization of the uh, population. Is that the role that the neighborhood pharmacy would play? And are you looking at the, the month of April? Uh, well, you're asking me to look into a crystal ball, and I think ultimately um, we are ready to play a role when the vaccine becomes available. Um, we have the infrastructure in place. Pharmacies are already equipped to have the training, have the expertise in delivering immunization programs. We do that every year with the flu programs and the flu, flu campaigns. So we are ready to play a really significant role. The question is, when will the vaccine be available? And that is uh, out of our hands at the moment, And uh, but once, once it is available and uh, we will be ready to step up and, and support Canadians and ensuring that uh, the vaccines readily and accessible, uh, ready, readily available and accessible to, uh, to the Canadians who need it. And I know a lot of Canadians will be there with their sleeves rolled up. Sandra, mm-hmm. thank you so much uh, for the time. Really appreciate the update. 
Really appreciate you having me again. Thanks, Jeff. Be well. Sandra Hanna is the CEO of the Neighborhood Pharmacy Association of Canada.